Hello and welcome back to Slice of Pie. The first time I heard about this concept of the pie, the psychologically informed environment, was on a podcast with Dan Abrahams and Elliot Newell from the English Institute of Sport. And I'm pleased to say after multiple recommendations from listeners of the show, Elliot has agreed to come on and share his experiences. Like the conversations with Matt Slater and Chris Hartley and Jamie Barker, there was so much to talk about and dig into, we're going to have to split the conversation in two episodes again. This first part is an exploration of the zigzag journey Elliot made from growing up in Watford and ending up at the EIS via Chester, Loughborough and now to Anglesey. You can follow Elliot on Twitter by searching his handle at ElliotSportsIPSY. The Premier League football season has returned this weekend and in true slice of pie form, we continue with the full-time review back in the studio. So the conversation will go for around 35 minutes, then we'll break for a cuppa and a debrief. Finally, before we jump into the conversation, I'd like to highlight a couple of brilliant new sports psychology podcasts that have launched recently. The first is 80% Mental with Hugh Gilmore and Peter Olasuga, and the other is the Sporting Failures Club presented by Michael Roberts and Jack Hicks Flynn. These are both fantastic additions to the sports psychology podosphere with some great guests, and I urge you to search for these on your platform of choice. Right, that's enough preamble. It's time to jump into the conversation with Elliot Newell. Elliot, how are we? I'm very good, thank you. Very good. Uh, you find me at a moment in life uh, where I'm feeling pretty happy and, and content. And um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty good, pretty good uh, place to be at the moment. Um, lockdown is peculiar, uh, but I'm... I'm <laughs> noticing um it's got its advantages uh certainly in in the the fortunate life i'm i'm, I'm lucky enough to lead so uh so yeah it's a, it's a pretty good time at the moment that is lovely to hear so can i assume that there's something in the the context of lockdown that has that has led to you feeling this contentment i imagine there will be people listening to this that might be able to relate to the idea of um how good it feels to not have that 5am alarm <laughs> when uh, you've got to jump in the car and drive three or four hours or, or get on the train to, to, uh, to wherever it might be for work. And um, I, I really enjoy my job. Uh, uh, one of the challenges it presents me is um, because I live in Anglesey, mm -hmm. which isn't near anything really. <laughs> um, wherever I've got a job on this, it's usually two to three hours, uh, sometimes four hours travel. So um, that bit I'm starting to appreciate more is uh, how how easy it is to get into a pattern of living where that becomes the norm. And, you know, you'd, you'd bump into to mates or family and you describe your work life and they look at you like you're, you're ever so mildly crazy because they're like, why would why would anyone ever do that? Why would you get up at those hours or work yeah, yeah. away? And but it just becomes normal for you. So now this new normal means that I can put that uh, degree of travel and time away from home in perspective. So the bits that are keeping me um, definitely happy and content is the extra sleep I'm getting, but um, probably more so is the uh, time I'm able to spend with, with my wife and, and my two young boys. Oh, lovely. Yeah, I, I suppose there will be people that can can relate to that. And obviously your your role is got quite a unique job in what you do but I think the general relation to having that that time back 
I think yeah. the, the pure, if you take, I'm, I'm very biased because I live in London. If you take the, the London context, for example, you quite often see the pure economics of London and housing, meaning that there's so many jobs here, but when people come to have families, they then kind of move quite far out in order to get that space. They can commute in yeah. and have that, that job that earns the money, but then they're living maybe a bit further outside of London to have that space so they can have their kids run around the garden and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And, but what that does create, it creates that an enormous amount of commuting time. And um, unfortunately, as well, in the UK, we're not particularly amazing with our our rail companies, <laughs> as, um, which, will, will, which will mean a lot to anyone commuting into Victoria on the southern or southeast rail in the last few years. Um, but I think, like, like you said, having that time back to put into even simple things like sleep mm. or to spend time with your, your family, it's a, it's a nice silver lining in which, in, in what otherwise is a quite a devastating context for the country and, and the world. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, one of the things that I find in um, just in general life is it, it's, it's, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a river and um, it, it takes you along with it. And sometimes you're not always in control of the directional pace. And through that, one of the things that on reflection I came to do was to perceive my life and the, the things that I'm fortunate to have as pretty normal. But then you get a situation like we find ourselves in now and you realize that there are so many people that don't have some of the fundamental things that I had and I imagine other people had taken for granted mm. um, so it just puts things in perspective certainly has done for me um, so I think that's been one of the big things that I have experienced through lockdown is just this this sense of um, gratitude which I admit at, at periods have, have felt like guilt in, in in some places particularly mm. when you when I learn of or hear stories of people that are really struggling mm. um but yeah I think it's been a useful exercise in just gaining perspective and um taking myself too seriously as perhaps I probably had done when you're in the flows of work and you're running projects and pursuing outcomes and you're trying to have an impact in in a very very small part of life but for you it is it means everything um, so yeah, definitely that opportunity to step back has been good for me, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I wonder whether there's, there can be quite a fine line between that, that gratitude and guilt and, and actually whether having that is, is probably quite a healthy thing. It's an indicator that you've got a big picture. You're aware that there are other people who are living through this in a different way to yourself, which is, is clearly a, a positive thing to have that perspective. The other thing I loved there was life is a river. I don't know whether that was created during your time with British British canoe, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I like this idea that it is a mixture of direction and pace because you hear a lot of you know, analogies about what life is like. It's going through two different doors. It's a you know it's a road. It's a mm. um, you know it's a, a roller coaster. Some some people might say. Yeah. Um, but particularly with the kind of the sliding doors look at life, you hear about how life can go in different directions. And you can look back at your own life and you can recognize that because you can see different points at which you could have gone one way or the other. And you think, God, life would have looked so different if you'd done that. But I like that mixture of direction and pace. That's so true. Life can go in, in different directions, but also the, the pace of life can kind of change. It can go through kind of quite intense periods or quite slow periods. Um, yeah. so I really like that. Life is a river. 
<laughs> yeah, and I think that probably was shaped by by canoeing. Yeah, just find that a, a useful way of connecting. And one of the things that I've noticed with my current role is that um, you get pulled in all kinds of directions. And sometimes those directions are interesting, but they might not necessarily be helpful or they might not necessarily help you get to the end goal that you're striving for. So mm. I, I, I kind of use that analogy because I, I talk a lot about pace and there's definitely periods of work where uh, I, I, am, I, I am overwhelmed and, and I am um, running at a pace that, or flowing down the river at a pace that just feels too quick. But then there are other times where you're like, feels a little bit like a lazy river at the at the water park, and you're like, come on, can we not do something a bit more exciting than this? So, mm. uh, but the direction bit is uh, interesting because quite often you can influence water and your direction in water, but ultimately the water will take you where it wants to take you. And if you, what I've noticed is that um, if you allow others and you allow the work to direct where you go, if you're not kind of in tune with that and you're not you know sticking your paddle in the right direction then it, it can take you places you don't necessarily want to go and you always have to have that end goal of like, well what is it that I'm striving towards and is this project or are these interactions or is this thing that I'm doing now helpful and, and taking me towards that end point yeah that's interesting I suppose the when I think of the word pace or speed I'm also thinking of the word of intensity as well and when something's quite intense like you say you mm. can get drawn into it and sometimes it's it's hard to pull yourself back out and go actually is this thing that I'm being really intense about actually actually helpful in the long run or or contributing to the goal yeah you mentioned British Canoe there you mentioned your your current role I think that'd be a great segue to talk about what you, you're doing now uh, and the journey up into this point so what were the the key points the key transitions through your career that have have brought you to the current role that you're doing? I, like everyone else, would have experienced a ton of transitions through life. Some um, regular or, or, or normal, in inverted commas, that you would expect. Like, so when we transition from primary school into secondary school. Uh, but then there's also been a number of other key transitions that have shaped who I am and, and how I see the world and how I've learned to, to cope and how I've learned to thrive. So the key one for me was probably that transition into and through the university. Mm -hmm. I had a pretty stable upbringing. We, I grew up in Watford and, um, and uh, spent pretty, well, yeah, my whole, my whole life there up until the point where we'd got to 18 and I can't quite remember why, but I decided that I needed to move right away and, and, I picked a university up north, uh, went to Chester. And the bit I recall there was just a, a, a sense of independence. Mm -hmm. and I went alone. Um, all of my friends went to other universities. And I think that was probably a, a key transition for me because I had been so reliant on the social group, so reliant on being one of the boys, being part of the footy team and, and, and just having that network of friends around mm -hmm. me. Um, transition into university, the, the driving factor for that for me was I'd already decided, I think by, at that point that I'd wanted to work in sport and I wanted to work in performance sport and I just wanted to go and explore something else. So from a life transition, um, obviously learning to live away, 
cook for yourself, uh, live by yourself, all of those things that, um, you know, I was lucky that mum used to sort out for me and, and then suddenly I was doing it by myself and mm. started with pot noodles and then progressed up to more uh, functional foods, you know. Um, <laughs> I think that was the main one. But, dur- but during uni, what I, I, I came to realise was that I really enjoyed people and I really enjoyed teams in particular and how things moved at a collective pace towards a, a shared goal and um, had great experiences um, just being part of the football culture at, at Chester and um, I started to coach and I originally went to, to uni to learn about physiotherapy and uh, okay. I was interested in, in pursuing a career in that and yeah, but coaching really grabbed my attention and I started to to coach and I started to um, take modules in coaching. And You're coaching football? Yes, yeah. yeah. And um, it struck me that it was all relational and greatest impact I was having on the learning, well-being and performance of people that I was supporting was with the re- positive relationships that I had. And um, mm. It kind of fell into that way of how Chester run their program that you would you would have modules and pedagogy and coaching in year one and year two, but I don't really remember that much psychology until second end of year two, and then I started taking modules in psychology, and I was like, ah, okay, right, this might be it. Then this sports psychology thing might be the bit that I'm really enjoying about coaching, mm. um, which then sent me off onto a masters, and then um, I went and did. I went back to after Chester. I went back to back to Watford and uh, did my uh, bases training as a sports scientist, specialising in psychology with a Gustav humanistic psychologist in in London. And, oh, right. um, that was probably the first major transition I had, where my experiences at university had been primarily mental skills training and uh-huh. was driven from a, a cognitive behavioral view of the world and the masters was influenced by one of the key researchers there whose specialism was in neuroscience so i'd kind of left uni with a big kind of um sciencey view of the world i guess where mm-hmm. you know you take the cognitive behavior approach you input a and you do b and you get c and you know we can take the neuroscience approach and look at everything in the brain so i kind of left with that and then i was flung into this phenomenal learning environment which was about meaning and perception and yeah just a whole different view of the world and and it was all counseling based Mm -hmm. and I was hugely fortunate to do that have that share that experience with um, five other psychs Um, my experiences of training in the UK is that I think most people's supervision through BPS or BASIS tends to be individual but my experiences was in a group which I look back on and think that was phenomenal Mm. I didn't know it at the time but those psychs have gone on and and done some brilliant things so I was in great company and and I learned a lot from that and I think transitionally that just fundamentally changed my view of what supporting people pursuing performance actually looks like and and what it could be so I'd gone from a mental skills training view of the world to then integrating kind of counseling and, and for those that um, are aware of the humanist approach it's it's very much about the whole person and it's very mm-hmm. much about the context of the now in the whole journey and there's a huge emphasis on presence and recognizing the moment and connecting with the moment which I think provided the foundations 
for when I went into practice with canoeing that um, I would bring in quite a lot of mindfulness and acceptance commitment therapy type approaches. So um, from a transitional moment, that, that was key because it, it needed me to change the way that I view the world and it needed me to change the way in which I behaved and interacted with the world, which was um, important, I think. I then spent a number of years lecturing. So I spent time at Loughborough College teaching on and then eventually leading on some aspects of the degree program there. And that was a really good experience for um, understanding pedagogy and, mm-hmm. and understanding how people learn. And I think my, my major transition there was, um, I think that was a period where I really began to doubt whether I was ever going to find this career that I'd been chasing in high performance sport. I was doing some bits on the side for Loughborough Uni, but... Okay, so this is the jeopardy part of the story. This is the, <laughs> yeah. the you're in the, in the woods and you're not quite sure where the path is. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind saying it. Uh, I, I, by the end, I just bloody hated it. I, I hated it. I didn't enjoy the work. I didn't enjoy feeling on the outside, if that made sense. So I would still follow performance. I would still chat to sports psychs. I would still pay attention to Olympic and Paralympic sport, which which was always my interest outside football. And there was always a sense of like, why these guys like, why can't I have a cool job like that? And, (laughs) (laughs) and, And then that was a period where things were changing from a training point of view. So I had committed to and completed bases, but then all of a sudden there was this new HCPC thing and you had to be on the register and you had to have done BPS and, you know, suddenly all of the knowledges and experiences and qualities that I'd built up felt like they weren't valued anymore because Mm. I didn't tick the right box. And there, there was a period where I felt quite isolated and ostracized from the profession. I felt I'd wasted time and effort and money because I couldn't be part of the gang anymore because I wasn't, you know, I didn't have the right training route. Yeah. Which is strange because at the time when I'd done the training route, it was the right training route, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, there was just a whole load of stuff. I was like, oh, this just ain't going to happen, is it? So I kind of resigned to being an, an academic. I started a PhD, which um, I didn't ever really want to do, but it felt like it was the only way out of my current job I couldn't get a job at university without one mm. and then we have that kind of sliding doors moment where one of the guys who used to work at the college had, had come back and I'd never met him before but he'd, he'd said oh, I'm going to pop into Loughborough for a drink if if anyone wants to come so he was catching up with some old colleagues and I don't quite know why because usually I'm a bit shy but I just went yeah, yeah I'll come <laughs> so we went and 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 um We'd had a drink in a local pub and he was saying, right, I've moved jobs now and um, I've been doing this stuff for Canoe England, but I can't do it anymore. And he offered it to someone else, uh, one of his former colleagues at the table. And she said, yeah, well, yeah, I'll do it. And uh, Elliot, why don't you help me out? So it, it, it then that was the key moment that changed because I had a bit of work to do. So I did volunteer work for Canoe England for what's been about four years, five years. And then what then happened was I wasn't trying to getting cold I wasn't trying to get in with a CV that had holes in it I mm-hmm. was already in and then role a role came up at canoeing which was to be the psychologist for a new talent transfer group and uh, it, it was only a six-week contract they were there for a talent transfer group yeah so 
They'd announced that uh, there was going to be gender parity in events across the 2020 Olympics. Okay. And there were male canoe sprint events, but there were no female ones. So the IOC announced that there would be events in female canoe sprint. And obviously, if that's never been an event before, it wasn't really a thing. British canoe didn't really have any female canoe sprint athletes. So oh, okay. they, they worked with the EIS to do this national talent transfer or talent ID program. And they'd gone through a process and, and 15 girls had been picked. And then um, they were going to train full time in Nottingham for six weeks before they made final decisions on whether they would be offered a position in the, in the British canoe team. And um, yeah, they just needed a psych for, for six weeks to do a bit of education, but primarily to help support the profiling and also just to help the girls settle in quickly and be able to show the best versions of themselves because a, a full-time six-week trial essentially is quite a, quite a big ask. Mm. And I think Canoe were brilliant to recognise that there's a psychological demand on that. And if you're going to put the demand on people, then it's only fair you support them appropriately. Yeah, I've definitely seen versions of that that look like sink or swim, <laughs> but... Um, I guess it was just lucky that British Canoeing had uh, a much better philosophy. So they wanted to support. Mm. And then that six weeks, we ended up recommending that they pick everyone. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they did. And then they said, well, we probably need to carry on with some of the psych support, don't we? So, uh, I, yeah, I came in, came into that. And that was a real transitional experience for me professionally because after six weeks, I'd probably done everything that I could have done that I was equipped to do, having trained primarily in mental skills training uh, and education. So you run your workshops on goal setting and what's your why and what are our values yeah. and how do you use imagery yeah. and all of yeah. that. You know, there wasn't a huge need for counselling based approaches. Uh, I'd been lucky that my experiences were counselling. I'd always been people had come and pursued me and said, can you help me with X, mm. which made it easy. But then all of a sudden I was in a full-time environment working with 15 individuals and they don't all need counselling support. Mm. So I was just there thinking, right, I don't quite know what impact looks like. <laughs> um, you know, unless people come and sue me and if they've got performance challenges. or So I had to learn on the job around what good applied psychology looked like. And it was on reflection a huge gap in my development as a as a practitioner to be able to work out what to do day to day mm. to help enable a, a psychologically informed environment to help enable progression towards shared goals to make sure that the program was functioning as highly as possible from a planning point of view from a testing and a curriculum point of view but also from a relationship point of view and how people navigate the complexities of that you know I was kind of just figuring it out and I was fortunate enough that in the first in that first six weeks period I British Canoe and the EIS had got some time with a, a couple of clinical psychologists who run a company called Changing Minds all right yeah and um, I was fortunate enough to be uh, supported by those guys and that was really transitional for me just because what they were saying was stuff that immediately made sense to me 
but hadn't necessarily been a formal part of my training or had been part of my experience as a practitioner up to date. And what they were helping me to do would be to create an environment that worked for each of the 15 individuals that we had in our squad. Mm. And that was really my first exposure to helping a team of people deliver a psychologically informed environment. So transitionally, that's just been remarkable because I look back at my previous practice and think, geez, I've changed a lot and I probably wouldn't really do a lot of the stuff that I used to do. So, yeah, I think uh, that took me to canoe and professionally, I was very, very happy. I was doing four days a week. But it's a four-hour drive from Anglesey to Nottingham. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, um, and I was hanging out with the coach, uh, the head para canoe coach, uh, Colin Radmore, and he's a very lovely guy. And uh, I'd, I'd be able to crash at his house. And, um, and I just think there's, from a personal point of view, I'm kind of like mid-20s. I'm, I'm traveling doing a job that I like but I'm, I'm essentially crashing on someone's couch during the week mm. and uh, it just feels a little bit like I haven't got my life in order and um, Noah our, our firstborn had, had arrived and I was like oh, I'm spending a lot of time away from home mm. and so the job was amazing but it just didn't fit professionally I'd, I'd, I'd transitioned into other areas of my life I'd been moved to Anglesey from Loughborough I was learning to love the environment that I was in I mean for a guy that grew up in Watford to find yourself in Anglesey big culture um, change right oh my dude the silence more than anything it's just unnerving <laughs> um you can hear like the sea and you can hear birds and like normally I can hear traffic and yeah. police cars yeah. <laughs> cranes you know? yeah yeah, yeah. So like traditionally, that was huge for me. I was learning to be a dad. I recently married, so then I had to uh, just find something that worked better. And uh, now I find myself in a really cool team in the EIS. I get a far better work-life balance. And I know I was referring to a lot of travel, but I'm probably on the road to possibly three days a week. Other times I get to work from home and, and get my head down so I can be here for the boys. You know, like when I'm working from home, I get to drop Noah off at school which is just a short walk away i get to pick him up from school we get to put the boys to bed mm. so very very long-winded answer but that's kind of all the the key personal and professional transitions that i can recall and, and connect with at this point that lead me to where i am now and like i said i think the transitions are those periods of change mm. they're usually externally triggered but it's not the external change itself that is the transition. I've, I've come to understand transitions as the transformational change someone goes through in experiences that change their beliefs, their interactions with the world, their behaviours. So, yeah, I think I've, I mean, I'm getting on a bit now, so I've experienced a few. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that's been, that's been my journey today. It's been, it's been a winding river, hasn't it? There's, yeah. there's a lot, clearly, that's, that's happened. I've just drawn a river through my... <laughs> my my book there and there's so much there that I'd, I'd love to to dig into but yeah it's interesting how going off to university that big first transition you're leaning into teaching you're leaning into pedagogy into to coaching you're then starting to pick up sports psychology which is really new and exciting and and I suppose the bits of sports psych that you're picking up are the bits that seem to chime with that kind of directive coaching pedagogical style and that's taken you down one route there and then you've 
you've transitioned out, done the masters, and you've got this this sage guru in gestalt and uh, and humanism, which has just opened up your mind to a completely different side of it, a completely different way of doing it. And then you've got the you've gone into your suppose the we're in the rapids now so kind of the waters in the in the river are, are kind of tossing there's maybe a few rocks uh there's a bit of doubt where is actually is this leading and then i suppose you you mentioned a kind of a sliding doors moment i've i've written down a kind of fork in the river hmm. where um it could have taken you down one way but you kind of you've you've got an opportunity there with uh with british canoe and that's led to so many amazing experiences in in the last few years uh, volunteering for Canoe England, working with the transfer group with uh, women's women's sprint, and then the, these other satellites of transitional and critical moments in terms of being able to access people from changing minds. Again, seeing it being done in a completely different way. Mm. So I think it's really interesting, and it's you know I, I love this this saying that it's so much easier to connect the dots looking back, right? Yeah. I suppose you must look back on your river and you go, okay, that kind of kind of makes sense in some way when I look back. But there must have been points on that journey where you look forward and go, where the hell is this taking me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, that idea of looking back and connecting the dots and making sense is something that I think was inherent in a lot of the humanistic training, but really came to the fore with change of mind support. And one of the things they taught me was that all behavior is understandable and meaningful in context, in the context of the person experiencing it and the context of the life story that they've led to, to this point in time. And yeah, a lot of what you said uh, echoes that, uh, not just me looking back on myself, but also trying to be an effective practitioner in the field is how do you help people connect their own dots or how do you help like uh, coaches or performance managers, for example, to understand the dots of the athletes that they're trying to support. Yeah. Okay. Well, let, let's lean into that. So your your current role, you mentioned you're now in the current role where you're traveling two, two to three days a week. Is this the senior pathway scientist? Yes. So for people listening and thinking, what is a, a senior pathway scientist? What, what What is that and what does it look like? It's very diverse. It's ambiguous in a lot of senses. So um, one of the great things about the EIS is that they, they drive performance phenomenally. And um, the way in which they found to do that best is to compartmentalize and, and separate a lot of the aspects of the organization. So you would have a performance lifestyle team, a team of performance analysts, a team of psychologists, a team of strength and conditioning coaches, etc. The Performance Pathways team uh, are one of a number of teams across the EIS that don't operate vertically down and drill into a specialism. Mm -hmm. They go across disciplines, so multidisciplinary or or transdisciplinary, however people want to describe it. But the idea is that you take knowledges and insight from a broad range of variables to then improve practice on the ground. So one of the teams in the EIS that do that are a performance innovation team, for example. Um, So they're the guys that do wicked projects like, um, you know, they'll they'll help British Cycling or British Skeleton with their suits and Mm -hmm. 
you know, or they'll do, uh, there was a wicked project that was in boxing over uh, the Rio cycle, which was around moisturizing. <laughs> so to reduce the chances of getting cut or, 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 or swelling to the, to the eyes. So you would look like you were in more control of the fight than perhaps you were. But our team is around trying to apply those transdisciplinary principles to support sports, to have performance pathways that are evidence-based and data-informed and, and are built on good practice. So the performance pathway is uh, anything from the point of first selection into a British performance environment all the way through to the point in which you leave. Yep. So it does include people's senior program experiences, but because there's so much activity going on at the top end, we quite often find ourselves trying to um, fill in the gaps lower down. Okay. So we work quite a lot with heads of talent, for example, head talent coaches on how they might best identify gaps in their pathway and how they might go and find the athletes with the attributes that they're looking for, um, how they create phenomenal learning experiences built on really clear ideas of curriculum and, and development that then best prepare athletes for senior success but then also provide them with the skills and attributes they're going to need to be successful after sport which is something that's becoming even more in our awareness as a system the, the duty of care the broader system has to making sure that athletes don't fall off a cliff edge when they get to the end of their career mm. that they have not just financial stability and employment prospects but they also have personal skills and personal attributes and characteristics that mean that they're going to be in a, in a decent position to, to move on post sport. So we end up working in practical terms. We end up working from very specific projects. So I've just finished a project with a sport where they came to us with a question, which was at under 16 level, what are the most appropriate psychosocial and cognitive characteristics we could profile for? And how might we best test that? And how might we best make sense of that? So wow. do a sport might come to you with like a really specific question. Yeah, and that's a juicy one, that. Oh, it's wicked. I love it. It's good how specific it is as well. It's, that's not a airy-fairy question. That's quite a, quite a defined, narrow question for you to get your teeth set into. And because we get to look across all the sports, we, we try and influence people to ask those questions so we looked across the sports and, and our gut feel was that we probably haven't got profiling right not just psych profiling but profiling as a holistic process right so we ended up inviting upwards of 100 people from talent roles across the system to an event so we ran a symposium on profiling we brought in some of the world leading experts to come and tell us about what the science says. We spoke to coaches and practitioners about what profiling could look like. And then it was off the back of that experience that people were provoked to think what they could do better with profiling. Mm. And then shortly after that kind of request falls in my inbox to say, well, you really provoked us to think about this. One of the things we really want to do well is psych profiling can you come and help us so you get those really specific projects or you get like big massive strategic ones so a big an example of a massive strategic project would be we obviously do a lot on transitions and um, one of the questions uk sport had was how do we best support 
the transitional experiences athletes have when they come into world-class programs. Mm. What do we need to do to support transitions as they navigate through a world-class program experience? And critically, how do we provide appropriate and world-leading support to athletes that are transitioning out of world-class programs, whether that's because they've been deselected or they've chosen another career or just because they're retiring and they're moving on to something else? Mm. You know, that that's a bloody massive question. Yeah. So, And that is a very different type of work. So, yeah, from a Pathways team perspective, like we've got people in the team that are coaches, physiologists, S&C coaches, you know, people developers, coach developers. Like it's just quite an eclectic mix of people. Mm. But what we do is try and solve or support sports to solve complex problems or to try and influence the direction in which the wider high-performance system is, is headed. If you are still listening, thanks for sharing another slice of pie. And if you're listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts and haven't done so yet, it would be brilliant if you could leave a review. And this would really help the podcast reach more people. For those of you that have already left a review, thank you very, very much. As you could hear in the conversation, I really latched onto Elliot's life metaphor of the river encapsulating changes in direction, the slicing doors in life that we so often look back on as critical moments, but also encapsulating this sense of speed or intensity, reflecting the surges of intensity that life throws at us from time to time. Within any world of work, where you learn your trade over a lifetime of development, one can recognise this sense of intensity or being in the rapids to use that same river and canoeing metaphor. It might be learning the ropes and throwing yourself into your first job or getting that first big promotion or getting into the team for the first time or it might be being in a managerial position for the first time as well. In sports psychology world of trainees and trainee development, McEwen, Todd and Eubank refer to going through these experiences as a concentrated period of learning that creates a sense of rapid growth. And I suppose where Elliot's metaphor comes in handy from a well-being perspective is that you don't want to be in the rapids for too long. Working and learning at such an intensity might not be sustainable in the long term and you might want to spend some time just floating downstream for a bit before the next period of angry white-tipped waves emerges. The other thing that struck me about Elliot's journey is the number of different people he has surrounded himself with and connects with as part of working in a multidisciplinary team. We heard him referring to work with fellow sports psychologists, with coaches, with head talent coaches, and even with innovation specialists during his anecdote about British boxing and moisturising. And to do this, he's been taking his expertise on the road, travelling around the country, talking to different athletes, coaches and specialists, sharing knowledge and connecting with different parts of the high-performance machine. And I think for me, that is one of the key pieces of learning I've taken from this conversation with Elliot, that all this psychology and high-performance stuff sounds absolutely great, but it has to be put into practice. And that means getting in there. It means getting on the road and getting out there, traveling, talking to people, collaborating. It's this effort and these conversations that exist in the gaps between the pretty flowchart boxes on a PowerPoint. 
Well, there's loads more from Elliot in part two of our conversation. We talk about the pivot to more well-being focus within Olympic sport, significant life setbacks, winning, but winning in a meaningful way, and some great sound bites by Ken Ravitzer as well. So look out for part two when it goes out later in the year. That's it from me. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, have a good one.